Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. What happens when you peer into the dark underbelly of the human psyche? How should we react when we uncover the raw truth of human nature, emotion, sexuality, and racism? We explore all of this and much more in this fascinating interview with our guest, Dr. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number four four. In our previous episode, we discussed all things sleep. Sleep has been under attack for the last 10 years, and yet it is one of the most powerful things that you can do for your performance, your health, your mental well-being, and your body. In our previous interview, we explored how to improve your sleep, how sleep works, and what you can be doing to sleep better with our previous guest, Dr. Dan Gartenberg. If you want to get a good night's sleep, Listen to our previous episode. Now, for our interview with Seth. Please note, this episode contains mature and adult content. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. Seth is an author, data scientist, and speaker. His book, Everybody Lies, was a New York Times bestseller and an Economist Book of the Year. 
Seth is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times and has worked as a visiting lecturer at the Wharton School and a data scientist at Google. He received his BA in philosophy from Stanford and his PhD in economics from Harvard. Seth, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Well, we're really excited to have you on here today. Your work and your research is so fascinating, and I can't wait to dig into it. I'd love to start out with a really simple question or idea, which is, what's wrong with surveys and the way that we try to collect data about humans and our behavior and human nature? And What's the problem with the current methodologies that we're using? Yeah, so one of the problems, with, so there are actually lots of problems with surveys, but one of the problems that I focus on in the book is that people lie to surveys. So there's an issue called social desirability bias, where people don't say what they're really thinking or really going to do or why they do the things they do. They say things that are socially desirable. So if you ask people, are you going to vote in an election? Far more people say they are going to vote than actually go out to vote in an election. If you ask people, are you racist? Just about nobody says yes, even though many, many people are racist. So many times we see that what people say isn't really true and that the bias is in the direction of what's socially desirable. Tell me a little bit more about the concept of social desirability bias and what causes people to do that and how it can negatively impact survey results and research results. Well, I think we don't really know. Technically, surveys are anonymous, so people don't need to lie. But I think there are a couple of reasons people lie. One is that people lie in their day-to-day life. So your wife or husband asks you, do I look good? You tend to just say yes, even if they don't look good or was the dinner good? Uh, You say yes, kind of these little white lies as we go through the day. And then a big issue with surveys is there's no incentive to tell the truth. So you don't have an incentive to lie necessarily, but you definitely don't have an incentive to tell the truth. So if someone asks you, uh, you know, Gallup or Pew ask you a question on some topic that might be a little sensitive, People just assume, well, you know, what do I gain by telling the truth? I'll just, you know, tell something that uh, just makes me feel good or look good. There's really no reason for me to tell my secrets. It's almost like their identity is playing into that. And people want to see themselves in a certain way, even if they're not trying to deceive the survey or necessarily perhaps they're really trying to reinforce a certain identity or a certain characterization of themselves. Yeah, that definitely does play a role. There's a great series of examples that you had. You touched on voting as one of them. Tell me the story about condoms and what some of the survey research revealed about that. Oh, yeah. So I looked at data from the General Social Survey. That's this big data set every year produced by the University of Chicago. And they ask men and women how frequently they have sex, whether they use a condom, whether it's heterosexual sex. You do the math and basically American women say they use 1.1 billion condoms every year in heterosexual sexual encounters. American men say they use 1.6 billion condoms every year in heterosexual sexual encounters. By definition, those numbers have to be the same. There are only a certain number of condoms used every year in heterosexual sexual encounters. So we know that somebody's kind of not telling the truth, lying about this. So I reach out to Nielsen. They have actual ground truth data on how many condoms are sold every year in the United States. And so we have a woman saying 1.1 billion condoms used, men saying 1.6 billion condoms used. Well, according to Nielsen, there are only 600 million condoms sold every year in the United States, some of them used by gay men and some of them thrown out. So basically, I think everybody's lying about this. And I think I do further research that I think they're not just lying about whether they're having protected sex, they're lying about the frequency of sex. I think there's a lot of pressure 
in today's culture for both men and women. It's a little stronger among men, but it's there for everybody to say you're having more sex than you actually are having because, you know, I think it's people don't want to admit, you know, if they're not having sex, they're having very little sex. So it kind of shows the strong pressures in our sex obsessed culture to maybe exaggerate how much people are having. And you discovered a methodology to start to see through some of these illusions and peel apart the social desirability bias that can skew research results. Tell me, how did you discover this new methodology and what is it? So I was doing my PhD in economics and just, I don't even remember one day I just saw that Google had released this tool called Google Trends, which allows researchers to look basically how a search term, when it's searched, where it's searched, how frequently it's searched. And right away, I kind of became obsessed with this data set in part because I suspected, and I think I later confirmed that people would be really, really honest on Google and they tell Google things that they don't tell other people, they don't tell their friends, their family members, their neighbors, their doctors, their psychiatrists, surveys, people kind of pour their heart out to Google. So people will tell Google about their sexual desires, the pornography they wanna watch. People will tell Google about their health problems, even health problems that might be embarrassing. People will tell Google about their dark thoughts, racist thoughts. People will tell Google about problems, their big struggles they're going through, uh, you know, child abuse, self-induced abortion. There are all these areas where they're kind of people might be really shy to talk about these with other people, but they really do pour their heart out to Google. It's such a fascinating thing to uncover and this idea that you may not ever think about that in your daily life. And I certainly hadn't thought about it that way until you phrased it like that. But the fact that we really do tell Google our deepest, darkest thoughts, the things we wake up at 3 a.m. and and Google in the middle of the night, we tell Google all of our fears and fantasies. And oftentimes, they're things that we would never dream of telling even some of the closest people in our lives. Yeah, so it's definitely an interesting window into people. And I've expanded it beyond Google. So I also, in the book, I got data from Pornhub, kind of uh, what videos are searched for and watched uh, all around the world. And that also is an interesting data set where people, you know, if you ask people, many people, I don't think they're going to be necessarily want to say what they're watching or what they're searching on Pornhub. Uh, but the data set is really, really interesting and revolutionary for the study of sexuality. And so there are all these, I think, uh, you know, really there are corners of the Internet where people are giving us windows into the human psyche that we've never had before. I want to dig into that a little bit because you have some fascinating conclusions and research that have come out of that. Tell me a little bit more about what came out of the research that you did on sites like Pornhub and what fascinating things you revealed about the darkest facets of the human psyche. Yeah, so Pornhub, I mean, I think the general conclusion from Pornhub data is that sexuality is a lot more varied than we're usually told. So I think when I was growing up, there was kind of an idea that sexual fantasy was basically Playboy magazine. It was kind of this, uh, you know, very conventionally attractive, big breasted, thin, maybe blonde haired girl next door. And I think Pornhub data really reveals much wider array of sexuality, like heavy set women are very, very popular on Pornhub. And that's not usually talked about, you know, usually we think that, you know, skinny is attractive and heavy isn't attractive, but you see, you know, widespread desire for heavier women. And then people's fantasies are just very politically incorrect sometimes. So 
violent pornography, even rape porn, is about twice as common among women than men, which isn't usually talked about. And, you know, it doesn't mean that women want to be raped or that makes rape less of a crime, but it does show that people's, you know, minds are not, they don't always go places necessarily they'd want them to go. And sexual fantasy, you know, can be politically incorrect, basically. The interesting thing about a lot of this data, and this applies well beyond research into human sexuality, is that these are the hidden, real trends and patterns and thought patterns that are driving human behavior. And it's so interesting that a tool like Google or a pornography website could be used to peer into and and almost become a mirror to look back and give us the truth about something that people would potentially never reveal in traditional survey style research. Yeah. So my favorite fact I uncovered in all of my research is that the number one Google search that starts my husband wants in the country of India is my husband wants me to breastfeed him. And that's like India and a little bit in Bangladesh and like nowhere else. And also pornography for adult breastfeeding is, uh, you know, much more popular in India than anywhere else. And that just like shocked me. And it's like just kind of and then like I think I published that and then they did some research and they asked people in India about this. And everybody's like, no, 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 that's not a thing in India. But like I'm like, you know, confident based on this data that it is reasonably widespread sexual fantasy that developed in India and a little bit in Bangladesh and nowhere else and isn't talked about at all which is just like, kind of fascinating for a lot of reasons that, you know, a sexual fantasy can develop in one part of the world and nowhere else. So what caused it and that something can be, you know, widespread, but because it's kind of shameful, just not be talked about at all, not be ever acknowledged. So yeah, that's like, it really does kind of change how you view the world. It's as if you've started to really see and understand human nature in a way that very few people have and in a way that may even be a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, there's definitely a, an uncomfortable element to it because I think people lie sometimes. There are two elements. One of it, which I think is comforting, is that you can feel less weird knowing that other people are also kind of weird. So I think a lot of human suffering is because everybody else puts on a front of how their life is going. And I think a lot of people think that their problems are like that they're uniquely messed up. And I think the data from Google or from Pornhub kind of shows you, all right, like everybody's kind of a mess in their own way or, you know, weird in their own way. And even if it's not talked about and there's probably nothing particularly, you know, abnormal about you. So that I think can really comfort people. But there is also a dark side. Another reason people lie is, you know, people lie in socially desirable ways to say, for example, I'm not racist, but I uncovered in Google searches a huge amount of secret, explicit racism in the United States, people searching for really, really nasty jokes about African-Americans in huge numbers. So that does make you feel worse that people might be, you know, if you're black, people might be kind of smiling at you and shaking your hand and being really friendly and nice, but then they're going home and searching things like N-word jokes. That is an uncomfortable fact that this data reveals. So how have you grappled with that? And what have you taken away from that research? How have you thought about what we should do with that information? Initially, I'm just like uncovering. I just was kind of uncovering these facts that are hidden. But now I'm more interested in how we can use it to change 
society. So instead of studying, you know, how much racism is there, say, can we use this data to understand what actually lowers racism, which may be different from what people talk about. And yeah, I think like there are just a lot of secrets. So I'll give you one study I'm working on a little bit. So it's like preliminary, but I've been doing this study on what people search for before they search for suicide, which I think is really, really important. I don't think we really know necessarily why people choose to end their life or think about ending their lives because there's so much stigma around mental health and suicide. So I found that, you know, a big complaint is health problems. About 30% of people before they search for suicide search for some health problems. And many of the health problems in the data set I was looking at, this is actually a different data set. It's an AOL data set, which allows you to track anonymous individuals over time, not Google, which doesn't allow you to do that. But 30% were health problems, and the number one health complaint was depression, which isn't any surprise. We know that depression is a major risk factor for suicide, and anxiety was very high. But then near the top in the data set I looked at was herpes, the STD. So people search for herpes, and then basically that they've gotten a diagnosis of herpes, and then they search looking to commit suicide. And that shocked the hell out of me, because that's not really usually considered a risk factor for suicide. And I think the reason for that is the stigma around the disease. Some young people, when they get the diagnosis, the, you know, being young is a period of life where there's a huge amount of paranoia. Nobody really knows what's going on, what's normal, what's weird. And uh, many people can get very paranoid. So then I was also looking at this data and I said, you know, okay, what else do people search when they search herpes and suicide? And I found the number one other search for people searching herpes and suicide was celebrities with herpes, which is actually a common search for many illnesses. So if people have search, you know, suggest they have depression, they search for celebrities with depression. I think people with an illness like to find role models, people who have that disease and have spoken out about having that disease and it makes them feel better so they know they're not alone and they know that some of their heroes also have struggled with this problem. But then I Googled what comes up when you search celebrities with herpes And when I looked, last I checked, basically all that comes up is a list of celebrities accused of having herpes who deny they have herpes. They're like a couple B-list or C-list or probably D-list celebrities who do say they have herpes to try to lower the stigma, but you know, very, very few celebrities and no real A-list celebrities. So that's kind of disturbing that you have this data uncovered by searches that there seem to be a large number of people, particularly young people, greeting a diagnosis of herpes with thoughts of suicide and they're looking for role models and instead of having a list of top celebrities saying i have this it's not a big deal it's nothing to be ashamed of we have you know a few celebrities saying i would never have such a horrible illness it's such a you know it's so embarrassing that i would never admit it basically so kind of i think that literally based on my analysis if celebrities admitted that they had herpes that literally would save lives It's so interesting that even the concept of retroactively looking back through search histories and saying, okay, someone is searching about suicide, which is a predictor of potential suicide rates. Let's figure out what's causing that and the ability to even just go back through their search history and see the evolution of those thought patterns. It's such a fascinating research methodology and creates so much potential for really truly understanding how people think and behave yeah and it's sad too it makes you more compassionate because it's like you know some of these search strings like i just remember like this one guy he's like 
he's in horrible back pain and just over and over again, he's like, I need to end my life. I can't take this back pain anymore, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, it just makes you compassionate because you really have no idea who's in back pain. So it's like, you might walk around and be jealous of some guy or girl or like, or, you know, like, oh, that person has everything. But if they have back pain, they might be going literally insane, like on the verge of suicide because of that. So like, you just really don't know what's going on in other people's minds. And I think, you know, when you look through some of this data, I think it does make you more compassionate, more easy on other people. There are a lot of people struggling with things that aren't openly talked about. Even people who probably on the outside look like they have everything or look like they have it all together. I think that that is such an important life lesson. And one of my favorite quotes, and I'll paraphrase it a little bit, but it's this idea that everyone you know is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. And your research has really, in many ways, uncovered the truth behind that and peered into the soul of many people and realized, wow, there really is so much suffering and struggle that we never hear about, never see about, especially in today's world, which ironically, the surface level of all these technologies, all of the social media is this glossy veneer of my life is perfect and it's amazing and look at me going on vacation and eating all this amazing food and taking wonderful photos. And yet the flip side of that, the same technology platforms are basically hiding and housing the deep, dark secrets of all of these people. Yeah, definitely. That's a good way to put it. And sometimes I do wonder if like, if we'd all just be happier, like I'd never suggest this, but if literally like all our searches were just revealed or all our internet behavior was just be revealed, it would be like embarrassing for five seconds. And then I think we'd almost have a better society at that point. <laughs> Cause it's just like, I think a huge cause of unhappiness is comparison to other people's lives and other people's cultivated lives. So the lives that they put on social media and the lives that they might talk about when they're trying to impress you. And I think a lot of us feel like our lives don't compare. And then, you know, if you saw people's searches, you kind of see, you know, just about everybody's going through, you know, a lot of suffering and a lot of anxiety and a lot of doubt and a lot of weird thoughts. I think it would just make everybody feel a little more normal, a little more okay in who they are. But yeah, I hope that at least like my book and some of the research I've done, you know, will do that on, a, on an aggregate stick scale. You know, you don't know for any individual okay, what's that person going through? But you kind of know through this data that a lot of people, a huge number of people are going through things. And it's a good excuse to go easier on yourself and on other people. So you go easier on other people because you know they're going through things and you go easier on yourself because you're like, okay, I haven't failed as much as maybe I feel like I have. Other people also have problems and issues and struggles and difficulties and it's totally normal. Such a great insight. And We've had a number of really good interviews on the show about the power and the importance of being self-compassionate. And I'll throw some of those into the show notes for listeners who want to dig in on that. But you brought up a really good point earlier and just underscored it again, which is this notion that as a researcher who's actually coming through this data, you've uncovered so many fascinating trends. And one of the changes that it's created for you is that you've become more compassionate and more understanding of other people and their quirkiness and their own struggles and challenges, what are some of the other changes or lessons that you've pulled from doing all of this groundbreaking research? Dating's another one. Like uh, 
when you see the pornography data and how much variation there is in what people search for, like I think when I first started dating a while ago, I'm like, I kind of viewed the world as like everybody's ranked like one to 10. So like Brad Pitt or whatever is a 10 for men and like, you know, Natalie Portman is a 10 for women and kind of goes down from there. And I think you do see in the data that that's not really as true as you might think. You know, there are some people into just about anything. And, you know, like I think one experience that, you know, I've been through and I think other people maybe can relate is you kind of get rejected by someone who you think is like a five or a four. And then you go on a date with someone who you think is a seven or eight and she's into you and you're like, why? Well, you might just be her type, basically. So th that kind of makes rejection a little less personal, too, because you're like, you might really just not be. It's not just that I'm lower on the ladder than you are. It's more just like, OK, I may not be your type and just kind of keep going out and trying until you find someone who is your type and you are their type. Yeah, that's a really important lesson, this idea that this false narrative or the social construct of some kind of dating hierarchy doesn't really exist. And this could be applied to any, even something like sales, right? If you don't have a pipeline of opportunities and you give up after the first no or the first rejection, you're missing out on a huge array of potential that... And this could apply to any endeavor in life. If you don't cultivate a number of opportunities, you may not get to where you need to get because there's so many different reasons that people may like you or your business or your opportunity, your idea, your podcast, your research, whatever it might be. You know, you as somebody in the dating pool, all these different pieces. And a lot of times it's a process of discovery to go out there and put yourself out there, but you have to be willing to be rejected and fail a few times to really find a good match for yourself. Definitely. And I think, yeah, the variation in taste is really, really important. I think, you know, yeah, it's the same with, you know, entertainment or podcasts, like some comedians, I might find a comedian really funny. My friend may think that person's not funny. And, you know, then there might be another comedian where it's completely reversed. So you kind of just have to, you know, find your market and put your content out there widely and kind of, you know, find your market and not take the rejection. So personally, VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So I want to zoom out a little bit and dig into a couple other themes from your research. One of the more interesting papers that you produced that I thought was fascinating discussed the relationship between opioids and anxiety and panic attacks. Tell me a little bit about that work and how you decided to research that and what some of the conclusions were. Oh, so I just was interested. There's been a big rise in anxiety searches in the United States over time. So there's this tool, Google Correlate, which allows you to see basically what searches are made the same time periods that searches for some, like if you put a search, anxiety or panic attack, it will tell you what searches kind of track that search in a time series that when weeks and when those searches are high, panic attack searches are high. And like one of the top when I looked at it was like opiate withdrawal. So that was really interesting because I'm like, wow, are opiates playing a big role in the rise of anxiety? Again, something that's not really talked about. Uh, and 
like in general, the whole anxiety day is interesting because I think, you know, I live in New York City. I live in Brooklyn. I'm from the New York area. I think there's kind of a stereotype of urban intellectuals being like really neurotic. So there's like Woody Allen did all these movies about kind of being this neurotic New Yorker and Larry David kind of expanded on that idea. But if you actually look at the data, you know, where's anxiety highest, where are panic attacks highest, intensity, rural areas, poor areas, places with lower levels of education. And I think areas that have been really hit hard by the opiate crisis. So I think, you know, that was kind of just suggestive evidence. It's not like definitive, okay, the opiate crisis is causing a rise in anxiety. But I think, you know, it's definitely, I think it's highly suggestive that that's playing a, a role. Very interesting. What are some other fascinating connections or things that you've uncovered in your research peering into some of these search result trends? One of them, this actually isn't my research, but I think it's an important one. Microsoft researchers have looked at people who search for pancreatic cancer, suggesting they just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. What do they search in the weeks and months before that? And they found really, really subtle patterns of search symptoms, basically what symptoms they search. And they found things like if you search indigestion followed by abdominal pain, that's a risk factor for pancreatic cancer. And that like really wasn't known to the medical community. And that's, I think, a really fascinating way to do medicine to kind of mine these enormous data sets with thousands or tens of thousands of people who just say they got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and what symptoms were they searching in the lead up. And the key with pancreatic cancer is the earlier you find out the higher your survival rate. So we could potentially use this information to maybe help people earlier on. That's wild. That in many ways reminds me of the same methodology from some of the research around suicide and in the sense of looking for people who search for pancreatic cancer and then tracking that back through time and saying, well, what were the prior searches that were precursors to them having that potential diagnosis. And the whole idea of using that as a medical diagnostic tool could really open up some fascinating possibilities. Yeah, definitely. I want to change gears and think about how we can take some of the lessons and ideas from your research and apply this to our own lives. I know you mentioned to me that you're working on a project about how we can start to use data to make better life decisions. Tell me a little bit more about that. This is, I guess, right along with the theme of your work, but I just kind of really noticed in my own life that I'm obsessed with data and, you know, I, I really love the book Moneyball and the movie Moneyball and I'm a big baseball fan. So I was obsessed from an early age about data analytics and how they transform baseball and, and you know, and I've, I've used it in my own business life. When I worked at Google, I was using data to help make decisions. But like when I think about the big decisions of my own life, like I would say, you know, I'm about as nerdy and data focused as it gets. And I would say, basically, I've largely gone on my intuition, just kind of followed advice of other people. I haven't really used good data and I haven't done things. So like one of the great things about the Moneyball example is that baseball teams start doing all these counterintuitive things, these things that looked wrong, felt wrong, but were, according to the data, actually right. So baseball teams start widely using the infield shift where you put all the infielders, you know, you put most of the infielders on one side of the infield and it looks crazy. Like you're opening up one side of the field totally. It looks like it can't possibly be a good decision. And yet the data suggests more times than not, it's the right play. So 
you know, and I can't really think of many examples in my own life where I've done something that felt wrong, but was justified by the data. So I kind of wanted to say, you know, what would be kind of a money ball approach to life, to the big life decisions, to dating, to parenting, to career, to health, dieting, to happiness, where what would be things that maybe like are many of them might be counterintuitive, many of them might feel wrong, but actually, according to the data, are better decisions. So that's kind of what I've been exploring for the last couple of years and hopefully, you know, producing a book based on it. What have you uncovered so far and which decision categories have you started to dig into? One of the ones I like is parenting. So if you actually look at the data on parenting, like I think it's pretty overwhelming that the number one decision you make, like as a parent, that counts more than every other decision combined is where you raise your kids. There's like new evidence that like they've tracked kind of using tax data, kids who move from one part of the United States to another part of the United States. And they found that growing up in certain parts of the United States just gives you a massive advantage. Like even tiny neighborhoods are massive advantages relative to the other things parents do. The evidence for a long time has said overall, like parenting has actually a pretty small effect, you know, whether you read to your kids or whether you ban video games or what advice you give them. All these things seem to add up to not that much. But then the neighborhood you raise your kids in adds up to a whole lot to the point that I think more than 50% of the impact of a parent will be what neighborhood you raise them in. And then there's all these data using these places, the best places, both the places that have historically been the best places to raise your kids and the characteristics of neighborhoods that are best places to raise their kids. And what seems to matter more than anything else. It's not the economics of the area, whether it's growing or not. It's not necessarily even the school's traditional metrics of school success. It tends to be the people around the area, kind of whether they're good citizens themselves, whether they're good role models for your kids. And I think one of the reasons for this, the evidence starting to suggest, is that kids frequently will tune out uh, what you tell them. So, you know, if, if you give them advice, they'll just, you know, they'll go through a stage where they're like, ah, that's stupid. I'm going to try something else. They go through a stage where they think you're kind of a, a clown and you're a crazy and everything you say is wrong, but the neighbors, they'll always kind of respect and think highly of. So for example, girls who move to areas with lots of female scientists, if their neighbors are female scientists, they're much more likely to become a female scientist. So basically what it suggests is as parents, like that's kind of counterintuitive because I think parents just assume, okay, you know, the big things are like how I raise them, the models I sell, the career advice I give them, the opportunities I offer them, the lessons I teach them, you know, the books I read to them, the presents I give them. And I think what this suggests is really the big thing you're going to give them is the people you put in their environment, you know, people you put near them, the other adults you put near them who they're going to kind of model themselves after and track. And again, these are not necessarily the places you normally think. It's not necessarily, okay, go to the suburbs where, you know, there's some highly ranked school that may not be the best role models. You know, there may be better people, better role models in other parts of the country. Very interesting. And coming back to the framework that you're using for this, I love the money ball approach to solving some of these big challenges in life and using science data and research to find sometimes counterintuitive strategies is such a great methodology for trying to implement really anything. Yeah, definitely. And another one is dating because this kind of came up in this discussion of porn, but there's actually a study where they've shown that 
Like women who shave their heads do surprisingly well in online dating sites and getting lots of dates, which you think would be totally crazy. Like women shaving their heads is not usually thought of as attractive, but it goes to the point that there are different types and people are into different things. And by kind of doing something that really expresses your personality, you can really become tens to some people. So I think the intuitive strategy in dating is you rank yourself on a scale of one to 10 and you try to say, what can push me higher? So if I'm a five, how can I make myself into a six on average? And I think the better dating strategy is to increase your variance, not your mean. So instead of saying, if you're a five, don't try to say what makes me a six on average, say what makes me a 10 to some people. So, you know, do things that might be a little bit more that some people are going to find really unattractive, but some people are going to find really attractive. That methodology of increasing your variance instead of your mean in general is a great mental model. And dating is certainly one example where that can be really effective. But I think even drawing that out and having that as a tool in your tool belt of mental models is a great and very counterintuitive method for potentially improving your output or your results in many different fields. That's true. I agree. Like it depends a little on how big is the market? Are there different preferences for your product, I guess? But yeah, I think in general, it's probably not done enough. I think a lot of people are just are really concerned with people thinking they're weird and doing these things frequently requires getting your variance high frequently requires doing things that will make some people think you're weird. So if you shave your head as a woman, you know, you're walking down the street, some people are going to think that person's a weirdo, but it's actually the better strategy. And if you have an outrageous product, you know, that's going to cause some people to think you're weird, but it could mean some people are really into you. Yeah. I think like artists have found this a lot. Like Bob Dylan, I remember when he was starting out, he just, got extreme reactions, very polarized reactions. Some people loved him and some people hated him and thought he was the weirdest guy ever. And why is this guy singing? And that was a good thing. And I think Dylan had this personality where he kind of didn't care so much about people thinking he was weird, which helped him a lot. So if you look at a field, even as broad as success, if you want to achieve something that not a lot of people have achieved, you have to do something that not a lot of people are willing to do. And that same idea of doing things that people may say, you're weird, why are you doing that? Those are often the, the exact things that you need to or should be doing if you really want to stand out, if you really want to create results, if you really want to achieve something. Yeah, I mean, I definitely learned that in my own life. So I, I was working at Google and I remember I was in this beer garden with a couple of my friends, a bunch of these random people, and I was about to quit my job to write my book. And I was kind of reading sections from my book to them. And like, it was, I think a section on sexuality or pornography, which I thought was really interesting. And they were just like, who the hell is this creep? Like, he's so weird. Why is he quitting his job at Google? Like you have a good job, like you're going to quit to write this book, but then it ended up working out really, really well. So yeah, I think like now if like people think I'm weird, I don't really think it's bad. I usually think that's a good thing. I'm a little concerned when everybody thinks what I'm doing is really normal or like, you know, everybody thinks it's a good idea because you know, again, yeah, just being meh, kind of okay to everybody is not usually the way to win in modern society. That's a great lesson. And something I've also experienced in my own life, it's so important to 
really think about. I almost use it as a contra indicator. If I'm doing something or a positive indicator, if I see something, I'm like, this seems kind of weird and you know, people might judge me for doing this. It's I often think to myself, maybe that means that that's exactly why I should do it. Yeah, you got to stand out. Like attention so hard to get these days. So I think so many people are, there's such a high pressure to conform and to not be weird, basically. And people feel that so strongly. Yeah, I think you got to try to fight against that. So Seth, for listeners who want to take something that we've talked about today and concretely implement some of these themes and ideas into their lives or use what we've discussed to improve their lives in some way, what would be one action item that you would give them as a step to concretely implement or use this to improve themselves? Maybe like anytime they're feeling bad about their lives, just look at Google autocomplete and like, you know, type something like I am always, and you'll see like all these people, you know, I'm always tired. I'm always hungry. I'm always thirsty. Like I think, you know, typing in things like this and seeing what's on people's minds, I found that usually makes me feel a little better when I'm really hard on myself, makes me a little more compassionate. That's a great and really simple hack to realize that everybody is struggling and everybody's suffering and that you are not an isolated island and that part of the human experience is almost to feel this illusion that you're alone when really we're all going through the same things. Yeah. And again, I think at least myself, but I guess a lot of other people really can be hard on ourselves thinking that, that everybody else has it figured out. And, you know, we personally don't, but literally Google autocomplete, just type, I hate, you see, I hate myself. I hate my life. I hate, like you just see, okay. Like a lot of people are struggling and confused. So. Well, Seth, where can listeners find you and your work and all of your research online? I always suggest just Googling everybody lies, Seth, because I have a complicated last name that nobody's going to find. But if you Google everybody lies, Seth, you'll find out who I am and you know see all my, my website and my Twitter feed and, and anything else you'd want. Well, Seth, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing some really fascinating and thought-provoking research and some interesting life hacks and strategies to implement as a result of it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. 
Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.